This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Thanks for tuning in. The main topic of today's episode taps into a fundamental part of our everyday lives, our ability to make decisions. The kinds of decisions we make throughout our life range from the mundane to the profound, but at a crude level, our choices define who we are. They determine what we do and what we choose not to do, who we choose to become, and the impact that we leave on this world. So, how exactly do we make these decisions? This general question has been the topic of research for many years and from many different perspectives, and neuroscientists have been contributing by asking a more specific question. What does the brain look like when it's making a decision? In today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Nao Uchida, a neuroscientist at Harvard University, who studies the neural circuitry of decision-making. By implanting electrodes into the brains of mice that are actively performing a decision, Dr. Uchida can observe in real time how the brain responds to making a decision. To take this to the next level, Dr. Uchida manipulates these neurons during the task, an elegant procedure that helps establish a direct link between brain activity and behavior. I hope you enjoy. Could you tell us some of the major questions that you've asked in your lab? Yeah, so my main interest is to understand how people make decisions, and I'm interested in understanding that question at the level of uh, neural circuits. So many people have studied uh, humans, for example, behavior economics by Kahneman and Tversky. I really like these ideas coming from uh, studying humans, mm-hmm. but I also I'm very much intrigued by uh, studies using non-human primates, monkeys, doing very rigorous uh, quantitative studies of neural uh, activities in behaving monkeys. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to look, look at greater detail at the neural circuit level, so I'm trying to incorporate new techniques to uh, combine these frameworks with uh, fine detailed biology. Mm-hmm. So that's what, what I'm trying to do. So in the in the human literature, yeah. uh, like in, in the real world, we have so many decisions that we yeah, have to make, yeah. you know, where, what should I eat for breakfast? Where, yeah. But then we have some, some of them are like seemingly simple, yeah. you know, what, what clothes should I wear? And some of them are complicated or like very intense, like yeah. in the, so for, in, what do we know in humans for, mm-hmm. is there any distinction between the two? And yeah. also what kind of tasks to understand this question have been asked or have yeah. been used? So for, for example, Kahneman and Tversky studied human decision-making by asking questions to you know, human subjects. And questions could be choosing between 100% probability of obtaining $100 uh, versus 50% of obtaining yeah. <laughs> $200. Okay. So uh, which one would you choose? And it turned out many people choose sure option. Um, in this case, 100% of $100 as opposed to 50% of $200. Yeah. So uh, people exhibit this kind of uh, preference uh, in the field. It's called risky uh, versus certain decisions. Yeah. So uh, people have preference to certain options in this domain of gain. But if you ask question such that now I give you $200 and you have a sure chance, 100% chance of losing um, $100 versus 
50% chance of losing $200. Mm-hmm. And many people now tend to choose this risky option <laughs> so that uh, you, you gamble for uh, losses. Yeah. So, and, and this turned out to be very, very common in many people. Uh, this suggests that may, maybe very deep biological basis is uh, working to generate this kind of preference. Mm-hmm. So the point is, uh, humans tend to choose certain options for gains, but they do gambles for uh, lost domain. I see. So, so the preference uh, flips, and for for gain and losses, they have certain uh, preference for for risky dis- decisions. And and it turns out you can also demonstrate that in many animals. So even in rats or pigeons studied in in the lab, they also exhibit risk. Uh, aversion or choosing certain options more preferentially uh, in many experiments. So the idea here is uh, even these uh, seemingly complex uh, economic decisions could be controlled by simple biological processes that are common to uh, many animal species. So the point is, you know, interesting human behavior could be modeled in simpler animals. If we could do that, we could we can look at um, detailed biological mechanisms. So that's what what I would like to do in the future. What model do you use then in for 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 an animal? Because obviously it's more difficult to convey uh, yeah. ideas to. So wh- how do you how do you set up a, a, a task for say a rat to yeah. uh, make a risky behavior? What yeah, what, yeah. what does that look like? Yeah. So you could uh, design a task in which there are two choice ports. And one delivers reward with certain probability and amount, and the other delivers different probability and different amount. And animals can choose between these uh, different options or reward ports. You can design these uh, Mm -hmm. simple experiments in animals. Although there are important differences as well, because in animal studies, we we have to train them uh, to get some preference, as opposed to in humans, you can instruct them and then immediately see the, the behavior. Mm-hmm. You could also uh, point out that in many animal studies, they repeat many trials, as opposed to in humans, our decisions are always one shot. Uh, so that could also cause difference. But mm-hmm. uh, I think there are many com- common processes that could could exist between humans and animals. So that that's, that's motivating. But, yeah, that's a motivating yeah, force behind what, doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Could you talk also a little bit, I want to hear a little bit more about the uh, the non-human primate studies, yeah, because yeah. I think that's really interesting, especially because I think the, the control over the inputs were really regulated. Could you talk a little bit about like yeah. what we learned from those kinds of studies? Yeah, yeah. So, so when I came to the U.S. Uh, in 2000, uh, many people are just starting to look at neural activity associated with decision-making uh, processes. And the uh, point of this experiment is they train monkeys to perform cognitively even complex uh, behavior paradigms. And and then the task is repeated many times and in a very uh, regular fashion. So you can collect neural data from many trials. Uh, Then you can use quantitative analysis. So uh, it involves a lot of training so that monkeys behave in a very uh, stereotyped manner, choosing between different options based on sensory cues sometimes, but also different outcomes. Uh, and you can train monkeys in these paradigms over 
yeah, so uh, days or months of training. Mm -hmm. So um, it involved training, uh, training, but uh, uh, you you can as uh, as far as you can train monkeys to perform in this kind of paradigm, it's a great model to look at uh, underlying brain processes. Uh, so that has been very inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I came to the U.S., people are just starting to do uh, this kind of uh, approach and looking at these uh, approaches from the side I wanted to, I come from molecular bi biology background uh, and so I wanted to combine my, my background with these um, interesting behavioral and neural studies so that I decided to uh, use uh, rodents to uh, study similar questions but uh, with the technique of molecular biology. So when an animal is making a decision, in, in these cases a lot of times there's a recording electrode in the brain and yeah. so you guys are getting like output of neural activity at yeah. the moment. So what does it look like? Can you predict what an animal is going mm -hmm. to do before they've done it? Is there some sort yeah. of, what do we know about uh, what the brain activity relates to, what kind of decision they're going to make? Yeah, I think you're, you're completely right. That So one thing that uh, people got really excited from was uh, the ability to predict future uh, decisions by looking at single neurons activities. So that also uh, tells you that neurons that you're recording could influence uh, future decisions. So uh, that was uh, really the key uh, aspect of recording data that they, they found. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that was also exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could we talk maybe a little bit, actually, so you said you came to the U.S. in the year 2000? Yeah, yeah so during my undergrad, uh, I was in the science department, so I, I studied various things in science, uh, but I majored in uh, biology, or developmental biology, and studying how neurons uh, make connections during development. So I studied in my graduate school, I, I went to the same school, I studied molecular mechanisms uh, that underlies adhesion at the synapse. So how neurons are connected uh, by a particular molecule. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the molecules that I focused was a calcium-dependent adhesion molecule called cadherin. Yeah, so um, my, my graduate supervisor uh, found these cadherin molecules. So I, I, my question was whether these molecules was also used in the synapse. At that time, there was no uh, knowledge about uh, what molecules are linking neurons at the synapse uh, in the central nervous system. So that was my thesis project. And But at that time, I think people are more emphasizing the gap between uh, two neurons at yeah. the synapse. So synaptic cleft existed, but <laughs> not, not so many people paid attention to yeah. molecules that are actually linking uh, pre- and post-synaptic neurons. What, what school is this, by the way? What university was did oh, you? Uh, I was in Kyoto University. Kyoto University. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, what made you come to the U.S. too? Um, was there someone that you worked came to work for, or did you start your own lab um, up in the United States? So I, I after graduating from my graduate school, I went to Riken Brain Institute in Japan too, mm -hmm. and I did two years postdoc there. And the purpose was to uh, learn electrophysiological techniques. Um, before coming to the U.S. So I, I explored some possibility to come to uh, U.S. to learn electrophysiology during my postdoc, but it didn't work quite well. So I decided <laughs> to learn the technique uh, first and then come to the U.S. 
And that, uh, for that, I went to a lab uh, which studied uh, olfaction. So that's how, how I got into uh, systems level electrophysiology, uh, studying sensory coding. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so how neurons respond to different orders. I also used, um, in addition to electrophysiology, I also used imaging techniques uh, to map which brain uh, regions are activated by what kind of spatial patterns in a particular brain area called a factory bulb uh, evoked by uh, other, different other st stimulations. Oh, okay. so, so that's my uh, first postdoc work. And then after learning basic techniques for factory electrophysiology and imaging, I decided to come to the U.S. I wanted to learn new techniques at that time, uh, two photon microscopes, so that you can image activity of neurons. And I, I took a, an imaging course at the Cold Spring Harbor, uh, and that was a fantastic summer course, and I met some people at Cold Spring Harbor as well. And, and so by talking after several people there, uh, I found a new PI who is just starting a lab, uh, and who just learned uh, two, photon uh, two photon microscope techniques, and he's setting up the lab. So, uh, and and he uh, decided to study olfaction. So hmm. he 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 didn't have any uh, background in olfaction, but he so you were the perfect person to <laughs> yeah. So so we 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 talked. Uh, I guess uh, so. Uh, who is this to, by the way? Zach Maynard. Okay. Uh, he he was just studying the lab at Cold Spring Harbor. Now he's a, a director of Champarimo Institute in Portugal. I think there is a neuroscience institute there, and he's the head of the institute now. So I, I worked with him during my postdoc, and I ended up not using two photon with him, <laughs> but I was very much excited about uh, behavior experiments and. That was really uh, very important for my uh, career. So was that the first time you had really started looking at behavior? Right, right. Blood? Yeah, I didn't have any background in behavior. Uh, so yeah, so I, I I changed the level of studies quite a lot. So I was studying molecular <laughs> biology and uh, everything started from dead tissue at that time. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to look at physiology, and I was very fascinated when I first recorded from neuron in anesthetized animal. But then I, uh, after looking at these uh, behaving animals, uh, that, that was quite fascinating and I, I felt that I'm doing real biology. And then <laughs> after that, a um, new, new uh, postdoc came and he introduced a recording technique uh, using multi-electrode called tetros uh, and recording activity from behaving animals. And that was really fascinating. And that uh, is uh, the main technique that I, I'm using. Could you talk to, you You study dopamine a lot. Uh, mm. Can we get into what, mm. could you tell us what dopamine is thought to signal in the brain? What? Yeah. Why is it produced and what kind of information do yeah. dopamine neurons signal mm -hmm. in the brain? Yeah, so dopamine neurons are usually known for processing reward or pleasure. Uh, but I think there was a very influential study uh, done by Wolfram, Wolfram Schultz. Uh, in 1990s, uh, he found that uh, dopamine neurons seem to signal a prediction error, that is, the discrepancy between actual reward and predicted reward. So when something better than expected happened, 
dopamine neurons increase the firing, something worse than expected happened, dopamine neurons reduced the activity. So this is a perfect teaching signal to tell the downstream neurons that you should increase your expectation up or down. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that is a key finding in the, in the field of neurobiology of decision making. And that also led to uh, many different kinds of studies in the field. For, for instance, finding representation of values that could be instructed by this teaching signal uh, and so on. So that was the key finding uh, in the field that drove the area, uh, the field, quite a long time. So that's why I got, I was naturally interested in that question. The very specific reason that I studied uh, dopamine uh, was uh, when I was looking at effect of previous trials on the next decisions. We, we got an idea that, uh, so let's say rats are choosing between uh, two options based on sensory cues. And sometimes decisions are difficult because the sensory cue is very noisy or close to the boundary. And sometimes decisions are easy because they are very clear uh, in one way or the other. What we observed first was uh, animals' decisions were biased toward the direction that at which the animal was just rewarded. So when animals got reward, they tend to choose the same port in the next trial. Mm-hmm. But this critically depended on the difficulty of decisions. So this tendency to choose just rewarded direction was more prominent when they made difficult decisions. And after mm-hmm. making a decision for easy decisions, we did not see this uh, effect of previous uh, reward. So, Is the, um, to get, let me see if I got that right. So if the, if the, the, they get some information and it's very easy to go to the left. They, they, they make the left choice. Then the yeah. next one is, conf- if the next one is ambiguous, do they always go back to the one, then they go just to the left one because that's where they got the reward, but not the other way around. So if then, so say it's difficult at first, but they decide to go to the left, mm-hmm. then the next one's very easy. Now it, they don't, now they're not influenced by that. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So let, let's say, uh, you get difficult choice in the next trial. Mm-hmm. But the previous trial could be easy or difficult. I see. Okay. And um, after making easy choice, you have a 50-50 chance of going to the left or right. Mm-hmm. But after getting reward for difficult decision in the previous trial, then animal tended to choose the same side. So um, that, actu- uh, that finding actually uh, was consistent with this prediction error idea. The, the idea is... After making a decision for difficult decision-making problem, then you have surprise that you got reward. But after solving an easy problem and got reward, you don't have surprise. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that idea was really consistent with the idea of dopamine prediction error. Yeah, and the surprise then teaches the 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 animal. Well, okay, I didn't expect yeah. that, but I got a reward. I should probably go back again. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So. So then we wanted to record from dopamine neurons. Okay, so are they doing the what we think they're, yeah. Yeah, during, mm-hmm. when, yeah, when they do this kind of interesting effect of previous trials. Did it, did it follow that pattern? Is it, did the uh, dopamine that, neurons? That's still ongoing. And we kind of struggle to find dopamine neurons. Yeah. So, uh, before, so this is before optogenetics, uh, was developed. Optogenetics is, of course, uh, 
you can activate neurons with uh, this light gated ion channel and we now use that uh, method to identify types of neurons uh, during recording but the, so the the time that this this experiment was done was before optogenetics got available yeah so we just inserted electrode and tried to use conventional method of using waveform shapes to identify dopamine neurons versus non-dopaminergic neurons and we struggled uh, a long time we couldn't really identify dopamine neurons yeah so uh, that experiment we we got some recording from what we think are dopamine neurons but uh, it wasn't very convincing so so we we uh, we stepped back and then decided to uh, now use this optogenetic method to really unambiguously identify dopamine neurons so so there there is a there, there is a lot of uh, transgenic mice which express uh, recombinase called cre recombinase in a, in a specific neuron types so you can drive these uh, cre recombinase uh, in particular cell types using uh, specific promoters or gene locus and then uh, you can inject viruses that express channel adoption uh, uh, in the presence of uh, clear recombinase. Mm. So in this way, you can express channel adoption in specific neuron types. And after the uh, channel adoption is expressed, uh, we uh, insert electrode and uh, uh, optical fiber and then verify that we are recording from particular neuron types. And only when we use this uh, method, we convincingly identify dopamine neurons. So, so now we can uh, more uh, we, we can identify dopamine neurons with more certainty. Uh, so uh, we routinely use this method. But before this method uh, was developed, I think it was very difficult for us to really identify dopamine neurons. So yeah. <laughs> my original question wasn't really answered yet, but that's a that's an ongoing project but now the tools are there to uh, better tools are now available yeah. to sort of answer that question yeah exactly so now if you're looking from just the dopamine cells what's the inputs to them and what uh, mm. how is that regulated yeah what tell what teaches the teacher or what yeah. is ah, the right. input that then drives that ah, ah. Uh, that response yeah yeah so um, we are starting to identify specific inputs to uh, dopamine neurons using rabies virus. We did that uh, in uh, using uh, or we did did it anatomically in a previous study and now we are trying to identify uh, pattern of activities that they exhibit, exhibit by recording from these neurons as well. So the rabies virus, could you explain a little bit about how that how that allows you to see the, um, yeah. the what, what's talking to the brain region you're interested in? Yeah, so as you know, rabies virus infect from the uh, periphery and infect up to central nervous system and eventually could kill uh, animals. Um, they do so by infecting uh, peripheral neurons, but also hopping or jumping from that neuron uh, transsynaptically. So they hop the synapse and infect presynaptic neurons. And they do this multiple times, uh, so they cross synapses many times. Uh, but then, uh, more recently, uh, Ed Callaway's group in Soap Institute developed, uh, modified the rabies virus 
such that uh, you need uh, two proteins uh, for the rabies virus to act uh, transsynaptic uh, uh, a, a tracer. So uh, one is so originally rabies virus infect mammalian neurons, but they uh, change the uh, membrane protein so that they require chicken version of the receptor uh, to infect. So only if you express chicken type of receptor in mammalian brain, then rabies virus uh, recognize the receptor and infect the, the neuron. Mm -hmm. The second modification was rabies virus uh, in this modified version lack uh, important protein that is necessary for uh, amplifying and hopping uh, from ac across neurons. Uh, across synapses. So it's called uh, rabies glycoprotein and um, because the virus itself lacks this protein, um, you have to express this protein in neurons for the rabies virus to uh, hop across synapses. So what you can do is now you can express these two proteins, receptor for rabies virus and this rabies glycoprotein essential for hopping in the neuron of your interest, in our case, dopamine neurons, and then uh, inject rabies virus to the brain area, and now rabies virus specifically infect dopamine neurons and then hop uh, the synapse from dopamine neurons. But once they are out of dopamine neurons in the presynaptic neurons, then uh, they no longer express uh, this rabies crack protein, so they cannot hop anymore. Uh, what you can do with this is, uh, therefore, you can label only monosynaptic or direct input. I think that that's a very uh, fantastic method, and we read the paper and decided to incorporate this uh, so that we can label inputs to dopamine neurons. And what have you guys found so far? What's the uh, that's still ongoing, right? But yeah. mm -hmm. uh, what do you guys? What, what I guess were you trying to uh, mm -hmm. look at that? You're trying to see what just so this this virus only allows then just the the inputs to that area mm -hmm. to be labeled, right. and then you can then control those using optogenetics too, right? Mm -hmm. So turn right. on and turn off, yeah. and you yeah. want to see maybe is it which contribution? Do you have a do you have a, a, a hypothesis of what you are testing for that? Uh -huh. So um, we could use this to test. Uh, role of specific inputs in particular behavior, but we are a little bit stepping back and see, uh, trying to observe how particular input neurons fire during the task. So our main interest is how dopamine neurons combine different inputs uh, to compute the output, namely the prediction uh, error signal. So to answer to that question and tease apart which uh, previous models are correct or uh, think about exact mechanisms, uh, we are recording from neurons uh, labeled by rabies virus. So, so in this way, uh, we, uh, we would like to uh, uh, propose better idea about how dopamine neurons actually compute prediction error. So there was one other thing I wanted to get to too, which mm. is that the the area in which the dopamine cells reside, there's also mm. these GABAergic, these like oh. inhibitory cells, yeah. and your your lab actually showed some really interesting mm. properties of that. Could you talk mm. about what you guys oh. found by studying not just the dopamine cells in that area? Yeah. So dopamine neurons reward response. So dopamine neurons response to reward is uh, reduced when reward was expected. So that's a key idea of reward prediction error. 
uh, and we recorded from GABA neurons at the same time and what we found was GABA neurons start to fire uh, in response to reward predictive order Q but then they uh, ramped up their activity and peaked at the time when the reward was predicted and then went down from that time point. So that uh, is a great candidate to inhibit dopamine neurons response to reward. And this is what we are actually looking for when we are thinking about uh, how dopamine neurons compute reward prediction error. And the key, comp key component of this is what is suppressing the activity of uh, reward evoked uh, activation. And I think one hypothesis that we have now is because of this firing pattern of GABA neurons, GABA neurons may be actually encoding reward prediction and then suppressing the activity of dopamine neurons in response to reward. Why do you think they, they, they have this pattern of ramping up in activity? Mm. Why do you think that is mm. the case and not like just a like a switch on or off where it would just you um, know increase in activity and then come back down? Yeah, so uh, expectation of reward uh, could contain both the level of uh, upcoming uh, reward value, but also the timing of reward. Uh, so this, this GABA neuron seems to reflect both the value of reward and also the timing of reward. Mm. So in a sense that uh, that is a, an ideal uh, player for uh, computing reward prediction error because it, it was also shown in the previous study that if you deliver a reward at the time when the reward was not expected, so earlier or later uh, from the trained time point, dopamine neurons also uh, get activated more strongly than when the reward comes exactly when the reward was predicted. So uh, this ramping up activity can, be can match with this kind of uh, firing uh, properties of dopamine neurons. So potentially these GABA neurons could explain uh, these these properties. What's something you would hope to that you hope to accomplish in the next mm. maybe let's say like five ten years? Like what's some of the next kind of like major milestones that you mm. hope that your lab will be a part of uh, progressing the field? Yeah, so we are also interested in uh, looking at uh, where dopamine neurons project to. So these are the good candidate for encoding values. And maybe driving the the behavior or choice choices that the animal makes. So I want to understand the whole neural circuit that, that are involved in encode not only these uh, error signals but how dopamine signals modulate the value representation in the downstream neurons, and then how it's how they are related to uh, behavior choices. So. Yeah, if we if we could understand the entire circuit that is doing this value calculation and value error corrections, I think that that's that's my one of my major goals. Do you hope that that will then help us make better decisions in our life about you know why am I always why do I not choose to exercise uh, even though I know that's <laughs> what I probably should be doing? Yeah, or <laughs> or is there could you talk about maybe some of the uh -huh. the hopes in terms of how that would. Uh, how that would uh, reflect in in mm. terms of helping uh, us figure out how to make better decisions, or are there also mm. any uh, instances of like diseases or, or um, mm. adaptations in which this could this information would be helpful? Yeah, I think um, one way this kind of uh, approach could be uh, useful is because uh, we have 
the the field has a very nice theory about how animals might learn from uh, reward reinforcing learning theory for example and using this kind of more you know principled way of thinking about how the circuit works could provide new ideas about how to think about uh, disease brains or uh, how we make decisions uh, so for instance uh, our finding that VT GABA neurons may be sending reward expectation signal to suppress uh, dopamine reward response could be interesting in the context of addiction because uh, it, it was known that uh, many addictive drugs like marijuana or opiate ta target or inhibit these VT GABA neurons so one idea is so these GABA neurons uh, as I mentioned suppress dopamine activity when reward was predicted so this is very important because this uh, this avoids you uh, from this prevents you from uh, over learning so once you learn the precise value you don't want to change it so otherwise if if, if you still get feed feedback signal to for, for learning then you might end up overestimating the outcome mm -hmm. so not responding when the prediction was perfect is very important to optimal behavior but uh, our finding indicate that these drugs really hijack this kind of feedback based uh, adjustment of this error signal or teaching signal mm -hmm. so one way to think about addiction could be um, in the presence of the, these drugs they overestimate the outcome or they um, they lose this kind of uh, feedback so so that they cannot stop from injecting drugs mm -hmm. so I think th this is a an interesting way to think about uh, drug addictions M might have some uh, some value in in that sense so uh, I think understanding how the brain works in a very more precise manner guided by theory could be influential so that we could also uh, maybe able to explain uh, various uh, disorders as well could you talk about what you enjoy most about being a neuroscientist and being a professor yeah uh-huh yeah um, I I really like interacting with students so uh, by, by doing so um, we get more ideas than I could think about <laughs> so uh, I think working together with students and postdocs is very um, interesting so that I could uh, think more broadly and differently uh, that that's a that's a very uh, great uh, point of being a professor what's your uh, your lab right now kind of do you have a, a wide variety of people that that work for you right now uh -huh. or do you uh, do you look for that in recruiting for the lab you know finding yeah. people from very dis different disciplines yeah that's what I actually actively try to do I uh, my lab has people from various background uh, people who had background in molecular biology and also people who had training in non-human primate uh, electrophysiology um, so uh, uh, and very diverse uh, people so that makes uh, the team very very interesting mm -hmm. so I, I try to uh, actively uh, recruit people from different backgrounds did you have anyone that kind of influenced you mm -hmm. uh... um, yeah so there are many people who influenced me but I could point out two uh, mm -hmm. one is 
my graduate super, uh, supervisor, uh, Professor uh, Takeichi, he's a, he's a very great scientist and very uh, careful. And he, he's actually a very good uh, person to observe and be able to observe and make findings in front of you. So I, I show some sample to him and he observe. I mean, I tried to observe myself before showing my sample to professor, but uh, he, he, he came and look at the microscope and find many different things. And it, it's, it's just amazing, you know, experience I had. <laughs> and uh, other, other, uh, person I, I was very, uh, influenced was, uh, the, the person who works in a very close field, uh, Okihide Hikosaka. Uh, he is a very good model for studying neural circuit, uh, using electrophysiology and, uh, we, we borrow a lot of uh, great ideas from his experiments and systems. So, uh, I, I, yeah, he, he was very influential. But, uh, yeah, along the way, I, I was able to work in a very uh, good lab. So, everyone who, who trained me uh, was very, very nice. And the finally, do you have anything when, when you're done with science, when you've, you've had a long day, uh, is there any other kind of, uh, uh, interests that you have any sort of like hobbies or, uh, stuff that you put your, uh, invest your time in outside of science? Um, actually I don't think much about it. So yeah. as far as I can do science, I'm happy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to learn cooking and other things. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy this. Uh, I enjoy science the most. I see. So you have that. You get to go home and pull up a bunch of papers and <laughs> and be excited. And yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we do that. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.